Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Wouldn't it be cool if there was a Netflix for finance? Well, there is. It's called Real Vision, and it gives you unprecedented access to some of the most respected names in finance. Watch interviews with legends like Kyle Bass, Jeff Gunlock, Stanley Drunkenmiller, and many, many more. If you want to be part of the Real Vision revolution, visit realvision.com slash WSO. Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Grodnick, and this is Moving Up, a podcast about secrets to success, struggles along the way, and life in general. Today on the pod, Ryan Darnell from Max Ventures. Ryan worked in private equity, and then he made his way over to work with much earlier companies as a VC. What he looks for in super early companies, and how to find the perfect job for you. I'm recording this on Sunday, my very first Father's Day. And just like every other day, my wife tells me what we're going to do. I said I wanted to go on a little hike, so maybe we'll do that. But with a baby, like the max you can be away from the house is about an hour. So not a lot of hiking options. Anyways, I got to say congrats to my buddy Greg Eisenberg, who was on the pod a couple months ago. His company Islands was acquired by WeWork last week. Very cool. If you remember, Islands is like Slack for college kids, a pretty cool messaging platform. I guess WeWork wants some kind of messaging for its users. I'm speculating here. I don't know. I haven't had a, ch- had a chance to talk with Greg about it. Um, my favorite term for the past few weeks has been, is this delightful or not? Maybe you've heard me talk about it. My life has been broken down into a binary way of seeing things as, is it delightful or not? It really applies back to company building, though. Are you building a product or service that is 10x better than the competition? Something that delights and excites users? Like unboxing an iPhone and then going through the setup process. So delightful. Or sitting next to my crying 11-month-old baby when we were flying back from Park City last week. So not delightful. Sorry, everyone sitting next to us as my daughter was having a meltdown. Anyway, since I'm thinking about what delights people in a product experience so much, I think I want to incorporate it as a new segment on the pod. It'll be fast, and we'll just talk about something great and then something not great. So for this week on the delightful side, it's the Facebook portal, Facebook's first physical product that costs like 120 bucks, and it's just a breeze to set up and use. It's got a great interface. We got my parents one in Utah so they can chat with us and see the baby. It's funny. It's sitting in my kitchen and it will start ringing as my parents are calling. We'll walk up to it and then boom, we get to have a really fun way of communicating. And for the price, you just can't beat it. Okay, so for the non-delightful side this week, it's pharmacies. Why has this business not been disrupted? The regulations, I'm sure, are a big part of it. But man, is it a terrible experience. I had to go this week to get EpiPens. I don't really take any medicine, but I'm allergic to peanuts, and my wife has been on me for having really expired EpiPens, so I had to go to CVS to get a refill. Anyway, I first waited in the pickup line, as you would think you would do, Uh, and then they said the prescription, it wasn't filled correctly, so I had to go all the way to the back of the drop-off line, talk with that person, and then 
back to the pickup line. Are you, are you kidding me? Like, why well, have two different lines? And after all that, they said my insurance wasn't going to cover it. I ended up walking out of the store with nothing. I went back later and it sorted itself out. I got the EpiPens and my insurance ended up covering it. But I'm amazed that someone hasn't created a better process for this. It's just a matter of time. That's the job of startups. Identify some arduous, outdated way of doing things and then come up with a better, more delightful way. Okay, that's it for the first installment of Delightful or Not. That's a pretty crappy name for it, but let me know if you have a better one and then we can add in some cool theme music. Okay, let's get into the interview. Okay, Ryan Darnell from Max Ventures, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Alex, thanks for having me. Yeah, excited to be talking with you. You, uh, you have a kind of a new-ish venture capital fund, and I mean, you've been, you've been doing it for, for a, a little while now, but I'd love to hear how you became a venture capital investor. Sure. So I, I think I made my first investment in late 2013. Um, I, uh, I was just kind of walking them back a little bit. Before I, was, before I started investing in early-stage companies, I worked at a, at, a, at a private equity fund. It's been about almost two years there, um, basically buying majority of positions in companies, um, helped sell a company, sit on, some few, sit on a few boards, and it was a really great experience for me. Um, when it came to just seeing kind of um, from the financial side of things, right? Um, obviously, we were working with much later stage companies. I didn't really find that super exciting, but it was two years well spent. Um, before that, I worked at the Incubator and Accelerator, actually, in Nashville, Tennessee. And I did that while I was in business school at Vanderbilt and, you know, helped start two consumer companies while I was there. So two guys who had an entrepreneurial background, a branding background, one of them had, one of them had um, one of them had started several companies and had one successful exit. The other one had been the former head of marketing at Puma and Gibson Guitar and was a creative director at Nike. So he's a really smart branding person. Um, so that's kind of where I really found, discovered my passion for like early stage startups and just really helping build those two companies. One was a, actually a rum brand. Um, the other one was a multi-channel network on YouTube and help working on those companies in the earliest stages really um, helped me realize kind of what got me excited, what, what, you know, what made me want to spend kind of all the time of my day working on a specific project. Um, and when I was at the private equity fund, one of our main LPs was, it was actually a European, American European family, the Stenbeck family. Um, we started looking at uh, their background as they've invested globally for a long time. Um, they've invested, you know, in Europe, Southeast, Southeast, uh, Southeast Asia, South America, and the U S and just saw the opportunity of, um, the ability to invest or the opportunity that's been created in investing in direct to consumer businesses, right? And um, we we spent some time um, looking at the looking at different categories, uh, kind of forming a thesis of what type of entrepreneurs we wanted to back and what type of categories we wanted to back. And we started to really just go out and test that in like 2013. They were my first LP in our first fund. Um, they were this or the single the only LP in our first fund, and we wanted to prove really three things. We wanted to prove the things I think are important starting out are one: a can you get the best can you get the best founders to want to work with you to begin with, right? Like this isn't this isn't like public market investing um, where you know you can buy anyone can buy securities in the open market. It's a situation where you know you need to, to succeed in venture. Average people go out of business, and you really need to get the absolutely most talented founders to be willing to work with you and, um, and take your money at the earliest stages, right? Anyone can go out and put a lot of money to work right now in venture. The question is, can you get the best people to take your money? And so we want to prove that one. 
Um, two, we wanted to, uh, two, we wanted to, uh, prove that we could make good decisions within the companies we had access to, right? Obviously important. And three, we wanted to, we wanted to prove that we could be good partners to the founders post-investment. And what I mean by that is like, can we do something to positively affect their business? Can we be one of their investors who they want to tell their friends about, who they want to tell other investors about? Like uh, that, we felt like those are the three things that are the, the most critical to proving with the first fund before we went out and raised outside money, kind of what we wanted to do and just, just to know kind of what we were doing was working. Um, felt good about kind of what um, what we accomplished in the first two and a half years or so. Um, we made 27 investments in the first in the first fund. Um, we're fortunate enough to get in some really great companies early on. We were the first investors in companies like uh, Box Wholesale, a company called ZoomCore, Button, Grub Market, Drone Racing League, um, and a few others that have gone on to do really well. And um, went out and actually raised an outside fund uh, in 2017, um, which was the first time we brought additional LPs on the platform. And uh, we're investing out of that fund now. I think we've made 10 investments so far out of that fund. So that's kind of, I guess, I took that a step farther than just your original question of how did you get into venture. But that's kind of a broad over, an overview of kind of how I got into venture and then um, kind of where we are today with our fund. Yeah, that's great to hear, Ryan. And so the thing I want to focus in on for the first part of our conversation here is, let's see, you, was this private equity job? Was this, was this the job you got right out of business school? Yeah, it was. It was honestly in a role where it was pretty, you know, it was an interesting job where, you know, it was very, um, it was kind of a two-year job and it was that post-B-school job where you got to do a lot of different things, you know, and interact with um, I'd interact with the management teams of some of the portfolio companies. Um, I would interact with the boards of these companies. I would interact with our investment team. I would do due diligence on the, some of the investments we were looking at. Um, I would work, work on specific projects um, within some of our portfolio companies. Um, so it was kind of one of those roles where you got exposed to a lot of different things, um, which was really good for me. It's what I needed at the time. And, um, but yeah, that, that's, that's kind of what the role was. And it was a two year role that I think we actually ended three months early to do this, but, um, that's, that's kind of where I spent my time there. Yeah. So, I mean, you're describing one of the cool or many of the cool aspects of working in private equity. So the first question is, how'd you get that job out of business school? I mean, people, people get, I was probably, yeah, you know what? I should have just gone into that because I was, so my, my first job out of, undergrad I actually played uh, baseball in college and just gave my career very little thought because every person who plays sports in college thinks they're going to play professionally and it's just not true uh, it wasn't true it obviously wasn't true for me um, so I, I ended up starting in a group called Ingram in in Nashville uh, worked there for four four and a half years ended up basically heading up heading up revenue for one of the subsidiaries um, uh, before I left. And, um, I, uh, so I went to, I was in B school. I was working at this incubator and accelerator spending, you know, all my time either on campus doing school or, or helping, helping with these early stage companies that are working on the incubator. And there was a piece, I mean, obviously like Vanderbilt's a great B business school, but there's not a ton of private equity jobs that come out of there. And there was, uh, there was a firm that came because the person who read the brand, the firm, Henry, um, was a Vanderbilt alum. And, I almost didn't even go. They have these info, information sessions on campus, um, people who come there to recruit. And honestly, I almost didn't even go because I said, look, these guys are probably looking for, you know, someone who has investment banking experience, someone who has banking 
some type of banking and financial experience. It's probably more of an LBO shop. Um, probably not a fit for me, but I'll go to the information session anyway because it's an interesting topic, and I'll probably learn something from it. And you know, I'll go back to back to my schoolwork after the information session. And I went to the information session as one of those type of firms where they really didn't, you know, it wasn't like the pure financial engineering where it's, they're taking out 90% debt on these companies or whatever. It was more they were buying companies that were operating. The, 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 the leverage levels were fairly low. They're more service-oriented businesses. And they were actually looking for someone who had kind of had a hybrid between, you know, a good financial mind and an operating background because half the job was, you know, half the job was working with the investment team and the other half of the job was working with, uh, the operations team and and some of the portfolio companies. So um, ended up just kind of hitting it off with with the with the people there and um, spent some time with them and you know came up here and spent time with them and um, just was fortunate enough to get the job. Honestly, yeah, so it wasn't that, a job that I I did just until the information session. Honestly, didn't think I was qualified for to be honest with you. Well, it's it's funny how things in life kind of have their way of of working out, and then that led you to this. And um, but. The next question is, you know, I mean, venture investing and private equity, granted, they're both on the buy side of, of, uh, of the spectrum, but they're very different. And there's really not, uh, you know, a proven record of people going from PE to VC. Like venture investors are usually ex-founders, entrepreneurs. Uh, so kind of how do you make that transition? Yeah, so, I mean, I think it would have been more difficult if I was a lifelong banker, right? Um, I think just spending, you know, maybe 25% of my career in P before before going to venture probably has helped me. I mean, I'll lean, lean on certain things I'll learn there. There's certain things i learned there, but there's also a lot of things i learned in operating roles that I, that I kind of lean on in my investing strategy today. I mean, the biggest difference is, the, you know, if you think about early stage venture specifically, um, two of the biggest differences between private equity and venture investing is when you're investing for a private equity fund, <clears throat> you're really trying to underwrite your risk, right? And you're trying to, it's not a kind of top-heavy portfolio where, you know, four or five companies might drift 80 to 90% of your returns. You've got to be very careful about underwriting your risk and make sure you're leaving very little chance that you're not going to make money in a lot of these investments. Whereas, in venture, that's not really the case. You're not really thinking, of course, there's always downside in early stage investing, but the downside is you lose one extra capital, right? And so you're, you're, you're not thinking as much for, I've got to hit constantly hit single to double and not strike out at all, right? That's kind of your mentality when you're a private equity investor. When you're a venture capital investor, you're kind of swinging, you know, swinging for the fences in a way where it's like, look, I know a lot of these companies in the end aren't going to work out. Um, but every time I make an investment, it needs to have the, the potential and the profile of being one of those two or three investments in our portfolio can drive, that can, you know, return multiples of the fund. And that really starts with uh, an amazing team, a great team who has, who works really well together and has unique talents uh, that are applicable directly to the company they're trying to build. Um, it comes with, you know, a market that's, 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 that's it will facilitate a big company being built, you know, whether that's an early market just starting to form or a more mature market where there's room to innovate and a, a, an approach that's different, that's, you know, different than everything else out there and, and is the optimal approach. And that, so that, that's the biggest difference between the two. I think the reason the transition isn't made a lot is because it's hard, you know, once you have, once you have the 
that private equity mentality in your DNA. That's just how you're going to think about things. And there's a certain framework you're going to go through making a decision. And it's very numbers oriented. It's very financial engineering oriented in a way where venture is kind of a lot different. The portfolio dynamics are going to be much different. How you evaluate investments is going to be much different. It's going to be much more subjective. And it's more about, um, you know, it's more about backing the best teams who are trying to do interesting things in, in markets that are kind of ready. Right. And that makes sense. Um, so you said you worked at, a, uh, at an accelerator during business school, and then you kind of you know, got a little bit of taste for private equity, 25% of your career. Um, so what skill sets and uh, what was it that, that set you up to be a you know, successful venture investor? You know, I think it's, a, it's kind of a little bit of everything. I have a very broad background, kind of non-conventional. The first job I was at, kind of my responsibility, it wasn't a tech-related job. Um, but it was, you know, I had to do everything from set pricing in multiple markets to to actually close, like, large commercial contracts with the end user to actually negotiate resources internally of a large corporation where I'm trying to negotiate capacity, you know, uh, between uh, between myself and external customers, which can actually be really difficult, to try to negotiate these lengthy uh, legal contracts sitting between two general counsels of large companies. So, you know, it's funny. It doesn't sound like when you hear, when I describe the job, it doesn't sound like, hey, that's something that's obviously you're, you know, you're on your way to be an early stage investor. But when you think about all the skills you kind of develop while you're in a role like I had at a college, um, a lot of them are very applicable. I mean, you have to understand, like, being a venture investor, you know, like, you spend, like, 5% of your time, 10% of your time maybe strategizing. A lot of what you're doing in venture investing is you're selling and you're reading and you're making judgment decisions, right? I mean, at the end of the day, um, there is such a strong component to being a, I don't know if self-person, self-person is the right word, but being able to influence, right? And whether that's getting one of the whether that's getting one of the you know best entrepreneurs out there to want to work with you, to helping companies recruit employees, to raising money for your fund, to getting the best you know partners in the ecosystem to want to work with you or your companies, a lot of it has that component to it. And you know if you develop that component too, you're better. I think you it's easier to recognize it in other people, and it's a very it's a very it's a very important skill for a founder to have as well. Um, so there was a lot of things I learned early in the jobs in my, some of my early career that was, was not a tech company that I think helped me in the role we have today. Um, I think when I, was, when I was working at the incubator when I was in B-School, <laughs> that was really my kind of jump into um, kind of early stage companies and how these companies are built from the earliest stages and what, what does the first 12 months of a company look like. And if you think about kind of what we do today – we're very much, we want to be the first part of the first investment into a company. And when we invest, a lot of times these companies don't even have products in market. They don't have established brands. You know, they don't have an audience. They don't have customers yet. So it's helping them think through the first 12 to 18 months is where I feel like I could be the most helpful when it comes to investing in these companies. And, you know, I'll take one example of the, of the incubator when I was there. I worked with um, a guy who was a brilliant marketing person, and we helped. I spent a lot of time help building a, this rum brand, and you know he had a very accomplished marketing uh, mindset, um, being from you know being the basically head of marketing in the U.S. for Puma, 
being a creative director at Nike and being the CMO at Gibson Guitar. And I remember the first thing we did on that project was really think about what is the brand, right? It was like, what is the brand? What is the true north of the brand? How is it communicated? Because when you build a, and, and kind of who's our audience and what do we want that audience to feel when they're interacting with our products and services and what do we want them? What value do we want to create for them? Right. And that's important to establish early on because, you know, when you're building a brand from the ground up, there's, there's so many small decisions that go into what that, you know, there's so many small inputs that go into what that final output is going to be, which is the brand that everyone sees and interacts with that. If you don't establish those certain principles early on, those certain guidelines early on, that you don't really have anything to kind of make, make decisions on, you know, if you don't have, you know, I remember that um, the rum brand was, we were working actually with like a famous musician on it. And it was, we want, you know, we want, and he had a house in the, he had the house and he had a, a vacation home in the Highlands and he wanted everyone to feel like he felt when, uh, when he was at his vacation home. Right. And so very early on, we had this feeling about, okay, you know, whether it's the, you know, that's the actual product, whether it's the label on the bottle or the, the bottle cap, whether it's the color palette around the bottle, like anything that the customer interacts with, like we know the true north of the brand is we want everyone to feel like he felt when he was at his island home. And I think being able to like understanding how to establish those certain fundamental things early on in a company's life, you know, helps me potentially help uh, some of the founders that we back in the earliest stages think about that. And, you know, the great thing about my job is, you know, we invest in, eight to 10 new companies a year, right? So I get to go through this with eight to 10 new founders every year. So ideally, you know, if we're doing our job right and we're putting the right effort for it, forth, then I'm getting better at it every every single time. So that's what, those are some, some a few small things that I think are actually big things that I think I learned from, from uh, previous stops in my career. Great. Okay, so... Let's get into the job today. So you said you're investing in eight to 10 companies a year. Does that mean you're seeing over 800 or a thousand companies? And like, what is it? You said these companies are so early, they're pre-product, pre-revenue. What is it that's setting them apart? Like break, how to, how can a company break through and become interesting to you? Yeah. So I, I mean, I probably meet with, I don't know. Um, yeah, I would say we probably meet with, I probably meet with 10 to 15 founders per week, right? New founders. And we have inbound of probably 500 plus companies a year. I don't, you know, I don't know, something like that. And, um, but I got, you know, I'm very careful about who, where we spend our time because, um, you know, with a, with being a single GP, like you want to, your time is very scarce and you want to, you want to dedicate it to or allocate it towards, um, you know, a good mix between looking at new companies and helping existing portfolio companies. So what I, what I look for, I try to break everything into our, uh, it starts with the team, first of all, and any, any team that we, that I'm digging into, I, before we invest, I want to come out and I want to be able to clearly articulate what is this person's professional skill set and what are their personal skill sets. And from a professional skill set side, you know, I think some people may just say, oh, they worked at Facebook, they worked at Google, they're probably good at this. Yeah, I think you have to understand, um, you want to, or at least me, I want to understand exactly what they've worked on in their career and try to understand what their role was in that project and try to understand what is their professional skill set. What are they specifically good at, right? Because each, what I've seen based on our investment so far, the companies that tend to do well they have a founding team where they may not be like the most well-rounded people as individuals, but each one of them are really, really great at something. 
and almost like an outlier at something specifically like maybe marketing or design talent or product talent. And then the other founders and early employees tend to complement them in some way. So I really try to see, I really try to understand, okay, here's the business. Here's what the most important skills that need to be present to execute and build this business. And here's the founding team. Here's what their professional skills are. And here's what their personal skills are, right? And that can be anything from this person's clearly like a hard, hardworking person. A lot of this comes out in meetings, but a lot of it comes out in references when you're talking to people too. Like this person, hey, they're clearly a hardworking person. Hey, they're clearly a resilient person. They're a gritty person. They're, um, you know, they can, they're really great at, at exceeding expectations and figuring things out as they go along. Um, and, you know, in, in the end, um, you want to see a skill set where you feel like this is one of the best five or six or seven or eight teams I'm going to see all year. And they're working on something where you feel like the market is the, 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 the time to launch this business in the market is optimal, whether it be, again, whether it be an emerging market that's just starting to get where the wave's just starting to begin or a more mature market where the existing incumbents are let's say, uh, not nimble, and they've created an opportunity for a startup to come in and take share, and then really evaluate their approach against that. Okay, you know, do, they, do we think that they have the right approach to this market? And, you know, based on what their background is, do they have the vantage point, best vantage point to understand, you know, what the approach should be in this market? Sure. Okay. That, that makes really good sense. Okay. So now let's flip the table, you've decided, okay, like this is an interesting company. It's an interesting team. I want to invest in them. How do you get that company to take your money? You know, I think, you know, the, the best, the best companies now, like I would say 90%, a vast majority of companies now, you know, it's, it's kind of out there on who invests where, right? If you're a founder going to raise money, you can, um, you can do very minimal amount of work and understand who's investing in early stage companies, right? And you're given geographic area. Um, so the chances are they're talking to multiple people and you know that, and the best teams are gonna have multiple people that wanna invest in their, in their company. Um, I, I think you just, one, you have to, they, they need to see you as put yourself in their shoes, right? If you're gonna go out and raise money, you're gonna want to, this is a long, pro, you know, building a company takes a long time. And whoever you choose as your investors, um, you're going to be with them for, if you're a successful company, for probably somewhere between five and 10 years, right? And that's a long time. And you need to make, it's an important decision, and you need to make a decision that you're going to be happy with the entire period of time. So um, what, what I try to do, one, is like just build a personal relationship, first of all, with the person, and decide, like, is this someone you want to work with for the next five plus years? Um, and, you know, there's things, there's been times where, we've ended up not investing or not getting into a deal where it's kind of like, all right, this could be a successful company, but we just didn't really have that personal chemistry or the personal relationship. Or it really wasn't something potentially that, you know, we weren't really clicking on all cylinders together and that's okay. And maybe we didn't move forward with that investment or maybe that company didn't move forward with us as their investor. Um, but I think you want to, you want to establish a personal chemistry and establish like personal values with the founder and yourself and kind of what you both believe to be true. Um, and then the second thing is you just need to articulate, like, what are you going to do, right? Like, what, okay, so this, where does this company need help? Where can you help this company? Um, and for me, whenever we, we get to the point where I've made up my mind that we're going we're gonna, to, we want to invest in this company, I just try to lay out, like, look, here's, here's where I think we can help. Here's where I think, like, 
what we bring to the table, whether it's, you know, whether it's, um, whether it's business development relationships, whether it's product help, whether it's marketing help, whether it's the suppliers that we know in the ecosystem, whether it's potential future capital raising, whatever. Here's where I think we're best suited to help you. Um, here's, you know, here's the companies we've previously invested in where we've really moved the needle for those companies in those categories. Here, you should go talk to those founders, and I'm happy to introduce you. And then, then the decision is incumbent on them who they, who they want to to invest in their company, right? And in retrospect, if you look at the 37 or so investments we've made so far, you know, once the founder gets to, um, you know, referencing us, we've always gotten into the deal. Um, I take great pride in that. And but once we can, if we can get to the point where we feel like we've communicated enough value to the entrepreneur where they want to actually go talk to other founders we back about us, then I feel the chances are highly likely that we're going to get to invest in the company. So that's, um, I think that's what you got to do. You just got to, you know, be very, it's like, it's like, you know, we're basically selling money at the end of the day. Right. And mm-hmm. if you're selling something, you want the person who's going to receive it to understand what they're going to get in return for that. So I think that's, that's the important thing. And you got to prove it too. I mean, it's one positive thing about the market today is I think people, it's much easier to get information about how, people behave in this market. Um, and it's much easier in founders, in my opinion, any major investor, they're going to let be part of their company. They should talk to other founders about them. They should talk to founders that the, that the investor suggests, and they should talk to a few others, especially some that where the company didn't work out as planned. And you should take that process very seriously. Um, and if I was a founder, you know, I would, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't optimize for speed. I would optimize for finding the right people and doing the work to make sure I align my cap table to give me the best chance to win long-term. That's great. Okay, Ryan, two more questions. Uh, The first one is kind of where do you go from here? You know, the venture cycle right now, we're at at a place where there's a lot of deals going on, money is readily available. You know, how do you prepare yourself for when things start to slow down? And like, where does your company go from here? Yeah, so I think when it comes to money being being available or not available, we've been fortunate enough to where now in our second fund and uh, I'll probably go raise a third fund two years from now. And I think at that point, uh, there, there's one thing, good, good managers perform, make, make good managers create good returns in almost any market, right? Whether money's available or where, where there's not money's not available. And I think over the next two years, we have to continue to prove that um, there's a large enough LP base that believes that we're worthy of, um, whether it's a frothy market or whether it's a down market, that we're worthy of their LP dollars, right? So uh, part of it is to continue to execute on our strategy and to continue, hopefully, to see the lagging metrics of that, which is good returns. And so far, we've been very happy with our returns. But look, the reality is we're only four years in, so the actual DPI or actual cash return to investors, while our portfolio looks great on paper, hasn't hasn't really material materialized yet. And I think that will have to start to happen over the next two years, but it hasn't yet. So we have to prove that. And then you just have to continue to build a firm, right? It's like what what do you want to be long term? And I would say we're kind of in our second phase of building that now. I think the first phase was us just proving, hey, can you, you know, can you do those three things that I mentioned earlier and execute on those three things? Um, I think we proved that with the first fund, and now the second fund, in my mind, these next two years continues to be about digging, building the firm for the long term. And, um, you know, there's a few things that I'm excited about that we're doing now. We're starting to, I feel like 
over the last few years. We've built a very um, a, a really strong presence in New York. Uh, we've built we've backed several companies that are performing extremely well. Um, we run one of the one of the biggest e-commerce events um, in the U.S. or the East Coast at least. And in Evolving E, we do that with GGV Capital, which always attracts a lot of really talented uh, founders and and people in the e-commerce world to our events. Um, we've uh, we've re- we reference real extreme, extremely well the founders that we've uh, that we've previously invested in here, and we've added a lot of really high-value LPs um, to our fund that can scale with us in the long term. So that's great. So that we've we've kind of, we've, we've we've done a good job building that in New York, and you sort of think about hey, where else? You know, where what? How can you take some of the things that you've you know you've built in New York and start to expand them in other places? Um, you know, my, my partner, Sophie Stenbeck, is, you know, their, their family is one of the most successful entrepreneurial families ever in Sweden. Um, and, you know, Stockholm's an area where it's a major innovation center. You've seen more, you've seen more VC-backed billion-dollar companies on a per capita basis come out of Stockholm than anywhere else in the world except for Silicon Valley. And um, they've had, I think, 2300000 million-plus exits in like the last two and a half years. And that's an area where I'm starting to personally spend more time. Um, I think there's a opportunity, honestly, for us specifically. I don't. I, I think it'd be really difficult to do without some of the people that were involved with our fund. But I think there's an opportunity specifically for us to um, to start to uh, invest in the Stockholm and the Nordic ecosystem in the early stages and take the network we've built in New York and start to build a bridge between between New York and the Nordic region. And that's something we've, we're in the very early stages of doing. But when you think about, when I think about your question, which is like, what's the firm, where's the firm going today? And it's one area where over the next 12 to 24 months, where you'll see that start to be built out and developed further. So that's uh, in the near term, that's where we're going in the long term. You know, we have kind of a, a long-term vision, but um, you know, that can, that can change with fundraising cycles. That can change based on, based on your results. So that's, that's where I'm spending a lot of my time over the next two years when it comes to expanding our fund. That's interesting. So last question here, Ryan, the advice question. So, you know, someone starting off their career, they're a baseball player in college, they're an investment banker right now. You know, what do you, what do you tell someone like this that's trying to figure out their place in the world? Any, any uh, relevant tidbits from, from your uh, journey? Yeah, I, I, you know, I would, I would tell... 22-year-old self, um, think about two things. Think about, um, think about what, you're, what you think you're good at and think about what you enjoy doing. And really try to optimize for some type of intersection for uh, wh- where you think your skill set lies and where your passion lies. And um, sometimes that takes a little searching, but if you can kind of really have self-reflection and figure out what those two things are, um, then, you know, figure out, figure out kind of a potential job opportunities where those intersect and just go all in on trying to get an opportunity, um, that, that allows you to combine kind of your skill set and passion. And the second part of that is, especially when you're early in your career, optimize for areas where two things, one roles, you can have a bigger impact. Like I wouldn't go to a large company and just kind of be, a, you know, kind of a name on a spreadsheet or an email address. I would go to a company where I knew I had a chance to really uh, sometime in the near future, have a real big impact on that, on that company in some way and go where, you know, you're going to work for really talented people. 
that's another thing when you're, especially when you're, especially when you're early in your career, like being able to work under someone who is extremely talented, one and extremely well networked. Um, you can the, the the rate at which you develop will increase dramatically, and I think that's an important thing. If you think about like you know a startup's life, you're trying to have rapid growth in the early days, right? If you think about like your career, you're trying to have, in my mind, rapid development in the early days, more so in the early days than than later. And I think working for someone who is just one of the most, you know, if you can, the, the more talented person you can find to work for, the better. And whatever you have to do to get that role, do it. I mean, I, I can tell you, you know, I the, the job I had at the incubator in college, I they didn't pay me at all. I was working like 40 hours a week and they didn't pay me. And I didn't care because I was learning so much like every day that I knew, you know, I was, that was the currency they were paying me in was, was a personal development. And so those are the things that I was talking to a 22 year old self that, that I'd say optimize for. Okay. That's fantastic. I think it's great advice, Ryan. And this was a pleasure speaking with you. Yeah, no, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Okay. Thanks for doing this. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening today. If you like moving up, the best way you can support us is by telling your friends, helping us grow and by leaving a review on iTunes. Thanks.